HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. During this time, it's more important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers, support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero-interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we are speaking with one of my most favorite guests, uh, the excellent reporter, Leah Douglas, who um, has been a guest on this show quite a few times. She is an associate editor and staff writer at FERN, otherwise known as the Food and Environment Reporting Network. Prior to joining their team, she worked for three years as a reporter and policy analyst with the Open Markets Institute, where she researched economic consolidation and monopolization in the food and agriculture industry. She founded and wrote Food and Power, a first-of-its-kind resource on food sector consolidation. Her writing on food, agriculture, and land policy has appeared in The Nation, The Washington Monthly, The Journal of Food Law and Policy, CNN, Fortune, Time, Slate, Daily Yonder, Civil Eats, and more. Leah has held a variety of jobs in the food system, including working on farms, co-running a CSA, and facilitating the development of rural food buying co-ops. Welcome back to the show, Leah. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, Thanks for having me, Katie. I feel like your voice is is such an important one in these times in terms of understanding what's going on with um, supply chain and and how agricultural uh, entities are coping with the you know really unprecedented uh, experience that this pandemic uh, represents. So. <clears throat> Just so you know, uh, earlier today, I'm in Rhode Island, and um, I, uh, my brother and sister-in-law who are with me are still in quarantine because they came in from New York. So I do the grocery shopping. I try not to go more than once every 10 days. And what is, um, what is fascinating to me is to see what is still unavailable or, or sort of the spotty inventory, because every week or, yeah, every week it's a different, 
you know, like today there were Ritz crackers, but no saltines. Uh, last week there was no frozen spinach, but there was, you know, kale. I mean, you know, it's kind of weird, quirky stuff. Like the produce is good. The meat seems pretty good. But it's these other goods, which I would have thought would be harder, you know, more sort of, you know, more regularly supplied somehow seem to be in bottlenecks. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So basically what we're seeing as a result of this pandemic is major logistical overhaul is happening in terms of how food gets to the retail shelf. And it's sort of twofold. At the beginning of the coronavirus spread in the U.S., we initially saw a sort of run on supermarkets where people were anticipating staying home. They were concerned. And so a lot of products were uh, sort of panic bought, quote unquote. People were hoarding and, and buying a lot of food at once. And so that presented an initial obstacle for the grocery logistics uh, process where, you know, stores that had anticipated a certain amount of demand, now that demand was double or triple a typical week. And so stores were depleting their inventory much more quickly than they typically would. And there was some bottlenecking in terms of getting those stores restocked. So that's sort of one aspect of, of why there's been inconsistent availability. And another, that ripple effect that we're seeing a few weeks into this process is that as, um, you know, restaurants and institutions are shuttering and no longer able to keep operating, there's an attempt to sort of funnel the food that was initially going into those outlets into the grocery retail market. You know, typically a consumer and eater will spend about half their food budget inside the home and about half outside the home. Now that's dramatically changing where a lot of people are eating three meals a day at home. And so that means there there's an attempt to sort of shift to, to combine these two really separate supply chains that were going to restaurants and institutions or to grocery all into the grocery space. And that also is just a huge logistical obstacle. So things are, are shifting. That process is happening. But in terms of the demands and the supply chain, it's still it's still presenting some issues and keeping stores fully stocked. Yeah, I find that absolutely fascinating. I mean, <clears throat> and why it should vary over time. Like some things I sort of understand because people are essentially still hoarding things like toilet paper. In my local, for example, you can only buy two rolls at a time and they only stock sort of a generic brand and they, you know, keeping a real tight lid on that. But other things you just think to yourself, why saltines this week? Why Ritz crackers last week? You know what I mean? It's like there. It's it's so odd to see these broadline distributors, which I guess is where this all sort of starts from, right? You have the broadline distributors getting it from manufacturers, and then they are, you know, sending it out their tentacles out all around the country. And it's it's still, uh, you know, it's it's fascinating to me how spotty and unprepared, I guess, is the word. Um, for managing these supply chain uh, anomalies. Is that, is that in a way, is that what's happened here? Is that we were unprepared for a disruption like this? And that's why they, I mean, even a month into this process, they're still not quite getting it right. Because there's still a lot of empty shelves in those supermarkets, right? 
Yes, I mean, it's definitely still something that is happening and and that folks are experiencing. You know, I also in my local supermarket, there will be sort of surprising inconsistencies like, you know, one type of butter is completely sold out, but another type is fully stocked. And it's, you know, why why is this? Why don't we just have all the butter? And, you know, one thing I learned in my reporting early on in this process was that in the typical grocery supply chain, there's between 80 and 100 days of inventory somewhere in the system. So it doesn't mean it's all at the store, but whether at the wholesaler warehouse or the distributor warehouse or in the back of the grocery store, there is that much inventory in place. So on the one hand, that does look like a lot of preparation because somewhere in the supply chain, we have several months of, of these different products in stock, right. especially non-perishable items. Uh, but I think it's really the rapid pace that this has accelerated and it's been disorienting for the supply chain, just like it's been disorienting for the average person is that it's been su- such a quick transition that it, there's these bottlenecks happening at each stage and there's only so many truck drivers, only so many trucks and and people to unload them um, at each step of the process. So I think it's mostly just an overwhelm in the system that is still catching up. Yeah. Um, That makes me, I mean, I know we were not going to talk about sort of truck drivers and whatnot, but just out of curiosity, do you have any idea like what kind of numbers or, or, or let me put it this way, has uh has the reporting um you know disease reporting been able to break out sort of categories of jobs which are more or less affected by covid-19 for example do food workers tend to represent a larger segment of the population that is acquiring the disease or is it more uh you know just people who ride the subway or live in a big building and have to press the elevator button and forget to use their elbow or Is there any sense of who's getting sick and why? That's a great question. And I'm sure we will eventually have have numbers like that. I think so far, you know, cities are only just starting to understand even by demographic information, you mm-hmm. know, and, and location in the city where people are getting sick. And, and we can sort of extrapolate from that some, you know, indication of perhaps why those communities are more exposed. For instance, in New York City, you know, disproportionately the cases are in Queens or in other boroughs, you know, which are disproportionately lower income and perhaps folks who are supply chain workers or other sort of what we're calling frontline workers who might have a greater exposure and less ability to work from home or to take time off if they're sick. So we can start right. to extrapolate, but, you know, I'm sure over time we will start to see specifically, you know, within the food supply chain, are there folks who are getting sicker at a higher rate? Yeah, yes. I'm, I'm sure in, after the fact, of course, they'll figure that out. But I'm just I was just curious if you had any idea, you know, if you had seen as you do the research for all of the stories, which, by the way, you are the most prolific writer. <laughs> I don't when do you sleep, woman? I mean, honestly, really like, prolific and, uh, and stressed out are two sides of the same coin. But yes, it's been a very active time at Fern. And, and we've uh, we have a lot of amazing freelancers also bulking up our coronavirus coverage. So it's been it's been a very uh, prolific time for the organization. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I would like to just give a little shout out to Fern. Because uh, and all of those stories about coronavirus have been are 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 no no longer behind the paywall, as they say. That's right. Yeah. So so anybody who wants to access those stories, please go to Food and Environment Reporting Network, and you will learn probably way more than you ever wanted to know about this uh, whole disastrous <laughs> episode of American history. Um. So let me ask you this: what What do you feel? You know, 
we know what's happened to restaurants in the front of the house and the back of the house. I mean, they're dead in the water. But what do you? What about uh, you know? To go back to sort of the supply chain and and work, food workers, you know, pickers, processors, uh, distributors. If they lose their jobs, are they? Or I, let me put it this way: Are they losing their jobs because of lack of demand from uh, from restaurants and institutions, which, after all, do form probably a significant portion of their um, you know client base? Yeah, you know, that process has it's been changing really rapidly, like all the circumstances here. When I was reporting, I spent some time reporting at the end of March, so that was last week, um, about the impact on growers who were selling wholesale into institutions and restaurants, particularly institutions like colleges and universities, uh, right. some hospitals. And they were just at the beginning of starting to see uh, what this sort of dramatic impact was going to, to be on them. You know, there were certainly farmers who had already laid off, you know, for instance, an office accounts manager or part-time workers. So they were starting to to have to lay off people who were sort of directly involved in managing those accounts. On the other hand, some farmers have been able to pivot their sales into, uh, you know, a CSA, you know, community-supported agriculture program, or to, you know, aggregate with other farmers and sell their products online. So some farmers are better situated for that than others. It's it's been sort of a mixed bag. So, you know, I'm hearing some reports that farmers can't even keep, you know, their virtual shelves stocked. You know, things are flying off the shelves. They're, you know, sold all their products. And then others who uh, are not able to to sell into that direct-to-consumer market. And that has to do with, you know, uh, for instance, like a dairy farm that was maybe selling into, you know, a wholesale or um, I, t- I spoke to one dairy farmer who supplied like the milk, um, uh, you know, distribution, what's it called? Like the milk containers in a college dining hall. Sure. And yeah. they didn't have any ability to, you know, bottle that for like what an individual household would need. You know, ah. they're, su- they're packaging it in bags, which are then going into the, you know, into the carafes at this dining hall. So there's some logistical things there around is the operation, you know, well suited towards a pivot towards uh retail of some kind and it's it's a mixed bag so i'm sure we'll see more um over the next few weeks of of which operations are able to weather that and which aren't well we one thing we have been seeing is is uh milk producers being forced to dump their milk um yep. that seems to be happening pretty much across the board and and as i understood it i even think from your story that it had to do with the fact that they weren't able to sell it into institutions the way they normally do and frankly the retail market um, is having struggling to buy milk as you know to to sell milk to consumers anyway because everybody wants to drink oat milk or almond milk or soy milk or something else. So I, right, you know, right, there's a lot of competition in the milk aisle now in retail that there didn't used to be. So yeah, that's another whole part of the story. We'll talk about that in a second, but I just want to keep going on with the sort of supply chain. So if, for example, um, and I know that you're, you know, I know that you sort of. I don't expect a scientific answer here, Leah. You're a reporter. You report what you know, and I get that. But I appreciate that you're willing to give opinions because not everybody is willing to give an opinion, and you have a very informed opinion. So anyway, um, to get back to this issue of supply chain, if we saw, for example, because we know that most of our pickers and processors, I'm thinking about the meat industry, I'm thinking about produce, uh, tend to be either uh, workers on a short term, you know, H1V, is it H1 visa, H1A? Uh, anyway, H2A. 
H-2A, excuse me, H-2A visa or uh, just undocumented. And if those people start getting sick, and as you alluded uh, earlier in the show, um, don't have access to, to uh, you know, medical care or more importantly, don't take time off because they'll lose their job or whatever. Um, but if we start seeing a great loss of those, uh, those workers, how will that affect the supply chain? What, what will happen then? Sure. So this is, you know, when when people have asked me, you know, what's the, you know, are we experiencing a food shortage? What's the situation? Should I be concerned about our food supply? What I've said is the most concerning aspect of this right now is the health of America's food system workers. And that absolutely includes pickers and folks who work in processing. Also, you know, our grocery store workers and people who are in those food service jobs. Um, And it's it's definitely one of the risks. We've already started to see um, a few cases in which uh, workers getting sick has affected uh, production. For instance, in the meat sector, there's been a few um, places where plants have been shut down or their production has been uh, decreased because enough people are sick in the plant that they've had to, they've been forced to slow down operations. This happened in one um, Pennsylvania plant that's managed by JBS, the meat packer JBS. And I believe it's also happened with Tyson. So we're starting to see that um, happen. And it certainly could result in, uh, you know, short-term delays in getting food to the shelf long-term, long-term, you know, there could be the possibility for shortages if it's a problem that's not managed well enough. And of course, this is absolutely why, you know, workers in these types of jobs need to have access to health care and paid time off and need to have the new um, policies around, uh, you know, sick time and things like that, the new federal policies really implemented in these workplaces because not only is their health and safety a huge priority, but they do, they are responsible for uh, moving this food through through the system and to our grocery stores. Um, so it's it's definitely an essential issue. Yeah, it is. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, <laughs> nobody's really thought this one through as far as I can tell. I mean, I guess, I mean, should I be more, less cynical about the, you know, the government? But I feel like the whole sort of the bottleneck of immigration, the, the, the resolute, failure of Congress to act appropriately about immigration, uh, which would then make protections for our food workers a lot more likely. Um, all of that stuff, I just, ugh, it's it's almost too much to even think about, I have to say. Um, so for farmers, uh, where, what, how are they managing the loss of their institutional buyers? Like you said, they were trying to pivot into retail but that's not always possible so what what happens to them is there is there money in the in the bailout for smaller operations like the kinds uh represented by um food to institution new england or something you know those organizations that help partner farmers with uh with colleges and hospitals and stuff like that is there any money allocated for these guys or is it just for big suppliers Yes. So, so there was a major effort at the as soon as this uh, pandemic uh, reached the U.S. and it became clear that this was going to 
present a major, uh, major change in how we, everyone in the country was, was eating and shopping. There was a major effort um, in the local food and farm uh, community to make sure that the federal assistance packages uh, included explicit protections for the types of farmers who sell to restaurants, to institutions, to schools, to these types of uh, businesses and, and organizations that were being effect- directly affected by social distancing. So as a result, the most recent, the CARES Act, the most recent uh, federal stimulus uh, did include $9.5 billion for uh, that's earmarked for specialty crop farmers, local farmers, uh, dairymen, folks who sell to institutions, etc. So there is that money in the bill. It has yet to be distributed um, and allocated uh, by USDA. So there is some ongoing, definitely ongoing advocacy and conversation about making sure that that money actually gets to farms. Uh, but that that money was was is earmarked in there, and also some of the the new federal uh, programs or expanded programs like the Small Business Administration. Administration, uh, Paycheck Protection Program, and others, farms can apply for those as well. So there has been some confusion about whether and how that, that process can happen, but um, there is a lot of work to, to try to connect farmers with those resources. I would say it remains to be seen uh, how effective and how quickly that process will happen um, because it certainly has been a little bit confusing so far exactly what what is going to be the result of this federal stimulus in terms of money in people's pockets. But uh, that money is in there and there's ongoing conversation about it. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be the question is whether or not the government can then get their act together sufficiently to be able to send those checks out, which at the moment, I mean, I I, th- I feel like I read yesterday or the day before yesterday that there was just a, you know, a clamoring for, you know, how am I going to get the money? And they don't really have a system, apparently, in place to actually cut those checks and get them to the people who need them. And and then I also wonder, like, how the hell do they know who they are? I mean, we're talking about fishermen, you know, not just farmers, but, you know, fishermen, dairymen. I mean, everybody on that in the food chain uh, is, you know, is really become the, the most essential worker in the nation, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and uh, they don't really seem to have their, uh, their ducks in a row when it comes to paying them. And I'm just, how long do you think these guys can hold out before, uh, you know, they have to sell off their equipment or they go into foreclosure or whatever? What, what do you think the, uh, what do you think the timeline is? Is it going to be, will it, if it takes a month for them, say it takes a month for the government to issue checks, is that already going to be too late for a lot of these guys, do you think? Or they're going to be able to hang in? You know, of course, it's it's hard to say for everyone. You know, every yeah, farm is in a different financial position. I would say, you know, my estimation is that this is a pretty uh, dire situation in that some, many, many farm businesses and, and food businesses, including fishermen and other folks who do food procurement, are facing, you know, a 90, 95% drop in their business. Yeah. You know, no, no small business is equipped to sustain that type of loss, of course. You know, the margins right. are very small in, in every food business. So um, we're already starting to see, you know, the real part of the reason why there was so much advocacy around that $9.5 billion was, you know, it's a a really urgent situation for the folks who would theoretically be receiving that money. Um, And, you know, it is, uh, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, That's okay. Well, why don't we take this moment to take a quick break? 
Great. You or reorganize <laughs> yourself. Yeah, right, right. And um, and we'll be right back with Leah Douglas from the Fern. Uh, we're talking about sort of the supply chain uh, and how it will continue to move forward despite the dire financial consequences of the pandemic on food suppliers. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after this drop. Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide, and two-thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed on to the plan, like Nam Wa Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Momofuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar, relief opportunities for all restaurants. So we are back. Uh, it is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're chatting with Leah Douglas from The Fern, um, talking about supply chains. Um, Leah, let's go back to the uh, to the dairy conundrum. Because there's there's so much there's always so much turmoil in the dairy industry, and I just saw and you as somebody who's an expert on consolidation and monopolization can speak to this. So Dairy Farmers of America looks like they are going to acquire Dean Dairy. Am I am I correct in that? Yes, Dean Foods. Yep. So Dean Foods. Uh, DFA. Yes, last week uh, was approved in the bankruptcy proceedings for Dean Foods, which declared bankruptcy at the end of 2019. Uh, the largest milk processor in the country uh, had been facing sort of years of declining sales, in part uh, due to lower uh, consumption of of fluid milk, just uh, milk you would buy off the shelf among consumers. Right. And uh, DFA is the largest dairy cooperative in the country, uh, and the two companies have a long history of working together. Uh, many have said over the years that that relationship is has violated antitrust laws. Uh, right. And so when the initial uh, proposal for DFA to buy Dean's assets was announced, it was quite uh, controversial. But um, they did ultimately uh, win the bid for um, Dean's assets. And there's still some, uh, you know, hoops to be jumped through. But barring a major antitrust challenge uh, from, say, the Department of Justice, uh, the deal looks like it's going to move ahead. And, and as a result, uh, DFA would then be the largest milk supplier and milk processor in the country. No, fabulous. That's just great <laughs> news for dairy farmers, isn't it? Already their prices are in the toilet. DFA, as when I was doing my little series a year or two ago about uh, the dairy industry in which I was trying to understand why it was, you know, in the toilet, um, it did seem as though DFA was kind of the bad guy, you know, the bad cop in the room because uh, they don't, despite being a co-op in name, um, they don't function as a co-op in the sense that they guarantee their producers a fair price for their milk and so forth. So I don't I don't see anything good happening in the dairy sector uh, anytime soon as a result of that consolidation. Let's uh, move on, though, to talk a little bit more about the relief bill, uh, the CARES bill, as you described it. Um, they provide for independent. Does the relief bill provide for independence in a significant way? Well, yeah, nine point two billion bucks seems like a fair amount of money, although not that much in the grand scheme of things, quite honestly, in my opinion. But, but do you think that this? Um, do you think that this? Uh, 
episode, the pandemic and the, the subsequent loss of small businesses, which is clearly inevitable to some degree, is this going to enable industrial agriculture and uh, food manufacture to further consolidate uh, its monopolies, such as what we just described with uh, DFA acquiring Dean Foods? Um, or do you think that the, the smaller sector will bounce back with renewed vigor from, you know, excited entrepreneurs who see an opportunity? Well, I would say there's definitely a concern that uh, the uh, government aid would be disproportionately allocated towards larger farm businesses. And yeah. when I've spoken with with folks about this, there's a comparison to the market facilitation program, which was the Trump administration's tariff uh, bailout for farms that were affected by mm-hmm. the ongoing trade war with China. Right. And that money was found to disproportionately go to the biggest farms um, and many smaller and mid-sized producers um, felt that that was an oversight and that it it, it ended up harming their business uh, to be left out of that program. And so many folks are comparing, uh, you know, this this next sort of round of government aid and saying the last one went to the big guys. How can we make sure that this one goes to everyone? Um, And so there's definitely a lot of advocacy for that. Um, Again, there's been very little indication of how exactly these programs are going to be rolled out and the timeline is still unclear. So uh, there is, you know, still concern that the the sort of status quo business as usual would look like the biggest farms, the biggest operations getting the most aid and the most uh, government attention. And so that is sort of the, the typical um, that's that's the fear that the many small and regional producers sure. and their advocates have. Uh, so a successful, um, you know, rollout that didn't uh, that didn't bias larger farms would definitely, uh, you know, make sure that that nine point five billion is being sent to the folks who need it most. And then perhaps with that aid, uh, again, it's hard to predict how long we'll be in this situation and, and what types of ongoing ripple effects that we can't even predict now will create more instability for food businesses. But at least that money could provide some sort of assistance to give small businesses in this sector a real fighting chance. Yes, certainly, I hope so. But I, you know, like you, I think it's, um, you know, pretty, it will require a great deal of advocacy, because what we don't have in our USDA uh, chief, Sonny Perdue, is an advocate for small and medium sized farms. I mean, he's up to date in the la- in the three years that he's been in his position in the cabinet. Um, I don't hear anybody saying, thank God we have Sonny Perdue looking out for our interests. <laughs> I'm sorry, just cracked myself up. I'm spending too much time by myself. Um, <laughs> um, so let, let's see. Let's, I guess we should wrap this up. But I know that... Um, I know that the pandemic is is basically sucking all the air out of the room here, but just for kicks, um, I'm wondering if you have heard one word from anyone in government uh, or politics that says what they think would be the best path forward uh, to recovering from this pandemic. 
You know, there are definitely folks in, in definitely legislators in Congress and in local politics who are taking this opportunity to, um, to really frame some, some changes that could extend beyond the pandemic as well. I'm doing some reporting this week on uh, the Mm -hmm. impact on SNAP uh, recipients, recipients of uh, federal food assistance and of this pandemic and particularly the limitations imposed on them um, that they can't shop for groceries online, for instance, like many of us have been doing to uh, reduce the number of times we have to go out. And there have been some very interesting policies introduced in around that particular, you know, just one small issue, but um, some, some policies that could adjust for the long term how SNAP recipients are able to shop uh, that would extend beyond the impact of this particular pandemic. So I'm sure we're going to keep seeing more ideas like that and, and folks taking this opportunity to say, you know, we're, we're seeing through the issue of distance learning that rural broadband and internet access is is a huge uh, problem and, and not nearly right. comprehensive enough. Are there public policies that could enhance coverage or enhance access for rural communities to better internet, better health care, et cetera? So I think that we will see more of that, um, though at the moment uh, there's also a lot of energy just uh, trying to get through one day at a time, it seems. So we'll Oh, have for to sure. See. Yeah. I mean, like I say, you know, it is unprecedented. Nobody really knows what they're doing, but I just... You know, given my my loathing for this particular administration, I'm <laughs> there is a little bit of Schadenfreude going on here. Yeah, you know. Uh, it's well, Leah, thank you so much for that uh, comprehensive day, answer, and and we can only hope for the very best from our uh, pathetic uh, federal government. Um, I thank you so much for all the reporting you're doing. I look forward to reading your next stories, and um, please come back and join me again very very soon. Um, so that we can learn more from basically the horse's mouth. That's what I feel like I'm doing when I talk to you. I'm talking to the horse's mouth. <laughs> and I mean that in the very best possible way. So thank <laughs> All right. So, um, so thank you for listening, folks. And thanks to my sponsor and, of course, to Matt, my engineer. And uh, we'll see you next week, folks. Next week, we're going to be talking with Marin McKenna, um, the wonderful journalist who wrote uh, Big Chicken, about the frequent um, evocation that uh, that feedlots are responsible for COVID for COVID ten uh, COVID nineteen. Wait, is it COVID nineteen? Yeah, it's COVID nineteen. Anyway, that's it. Thanks so much for listening, folks. Sorry about this crazy ending, and um, we'll see you next week. Bye bye for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, 
We at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the way that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to firsthand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how the crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep Food Radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate.